The Bronx is booming with development. New housing projects are sprouting up across the borough. But in the midst of this change, you'll find remnants of the past that have stood the test of time. Hi, I'm George Bodarkey, and this is Cityscape. On this week's show, we're exploring two of the most historic homes in the Bronx, the Van Cortland House and Poe Cottage, where the master of macabre once hung his hat. First, a peer inside the Van Cortland House Museum. I was greeted at the door by museum director Laura Carpenter Myers. Laura, I can't tell you how excited I am to be at the Van Cortland House Museum. I am a native Bronxite, and I've never stepped foot through these doors before. That is an extremely common reaction when people finally do make it here. So you're in very good company because a lot of your fellow Bronxites both past, present, and hopefully future, um, have that experience. And I'm actually kind of delighted that I get to be here for your first sort of discovery of the house. This is the oldest house in the borough of the Bronx, the oldest house. It's the oldest surviving house. There were actually houses on this property that predated this one um, that were torn down to build before this one was built. Um, And there were probably other buildings older that maybe survived into the early 20th century, late 19th century, but this is the oldest surviving. We have to qualify that. So when was this house built? The house was built in 1748, actually begun in 1748, and not fully occupied until probably sometime in the early 1750s. I understand that this is on the site of what was once a wheat plantation? Yes, yes. If you noticed when you were coming in today, um, there's a huge field to the north of the house, and it is now playing fields called the Parade Ground. Um, not, the par- not to be mistaken with the Parade Ground in Prospect Park in Brooklyn, which sometimes happens as well, um, but that was part of the arable land that was on the family's plantation, and they did grow wheat. The family being the the Van Van Cortland. Yes, the Van Cortland family. The Van Cortland family really was the most um, noted landowner of this area. Um, Some of the land was purchased from Frederick Phillips of Phillips Manor Hall fame up in Yonkers, Mm -hmm. about a mile and a half north of here, up Broadway. But really, it's been held, once it was purchased officially um, and amassed by the family, it was held within that one family for the whole period of time until it was sold to the city to be parkland, and then later the house was given to the city, hopefully to be used for some sort of good civic purpose. Um, And in fact, uh, briefly the house was used in its early vacancy um, as a police substation. Really? When this part of Yonkers was being annexed into the Bronx, um, you don't annex something that immediately has all the infrastructure that you need, and so they needed a police precinct, and so this was briefly used for that purpose. I've read that it was also once used to house ranchers yes. and there were bison all around here? Yes, yes. There is a failed experiment from, I think the man was in, from somewhere in upstate New York, um, uh, quite eccentric from, from what we know of him, um, that he wanted to sort of reintroduce the North American bison and um, wanted to do it here. And your thought process might lead you to think that they fenced in the parade ground and held the bison there because it was sort of prairie and wide open space. No, they fenced in Vault Hill and put these poor bison in terrain that they could not thrive in. And so it was a failed experiment. Um, Did they move those bison to the Bronx Zoo? That's the burning question that everyone asks, and we're just not certain. It's quite possible that they did, um, but we can't, we've never been able to really connect those dots. The house today does have a gate around it. Yes. It always have a gate around it. It had a fence of some sort, um, nothing as formal as what we have today. The, actually, the fence that we have around the house today um, was put in in 1954, um, and it was salvaged, as all good things are, um, 
from the Delancey Street malls. If you've ever been in Lower Manhattan and you'll notice that there's those median um, and there's beautiful fence and they were reworking the streets at one point and salvaged enough fence, had it in a warehouse somewhere and voila, we got it. And it's really nice to have because it gives us a buffer from the larger park. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen this park when there are 20,000 cross country runners out on the field or cricket. Um, all, you name the sport, pretty much it's played here in this park. And so it gives us a bit of a breathing space. So let's talk more about the Van Cortland family. When did they first come here, which I guess wasn't New York when they came here from Holland, right? Correct. They came during the New Amsterdam colonial period, and unlike some of the other English colonies, they came specifically not for, for religious, because of religious persecution. They didn't come for any sort of noble, noble purpose. Um, they came to make money. They were, they were very quickly recognized that there were um, resources to be exploited, to be taken advantage of, and um, the Dutch came and ran with it. And how did they primarily make their money at first? At first, it was through shipping. Um, they also traded um, furs, which was one of the more common um, ways of making money in New Amsterdam. There was a massive fur trade, which I think a lot of us are, many people are familiar with. They also were active in um, buying and selling real estate, politics. They were just well-connected, had their fingers in a lot of little pies, and just kept working an angle wherever they could find it. And they started married, this wheat plantation yes, here in the Bronx. Yes, and married advantageously. That was a, another way to really get ahead. Um, the first native-born mayor of New York City was a Van Cortland. Um, Stephanus? Stephanus. Stephanus. Stephanus Van Cortland. And then he had a son, Jacobus? Jacobus. Jacobus. You're going to have to help me out with pronunciations <laughs> okay. here. It's okay. It takes, a lot. it takes a little while to learn them. And then the whole string of Augustuses and Fredericks and the, the names perpetuate within the family and it gets a little confusing when you're working on the genealogy. I'm sure. Which Van Cortland, though, specifically built this house? This house was built by Frederick Van Cortland. Um, his father had given a piece of this property to him as a wedding present, and there had previously been another house on the plantation somewhere. Um, we're not entirely sure where. And then Frederick kept adding and adding and adding to it. And when he was in his 50s, um, by 1748, he had um, three sons, two daughters, and was looking to sort of retire a little, per se, um, and so wanted to build a house that was kind of like his last house. Um, so make it elegant, large, comfortable, and yet compared to some other mansions or plantation houses in the 18th century, it's a little compact. It's one of those kind of, like it's almost like a TARDIS because it doesn't look as spacious on the outside as it is once you get inside. Um, How big is the house? How many rooms? The room, the house right now of period rooms that people get to see, we have um, eight. Um, our kitchen is under um, restoration. And that, it's actually not the original kitchen, so we're trying to figure out the best way to interpret that. Um, but there are, there are eight rooms that people can see. And it ranges from um, the, the influence of Frederick Van Cortland, who started building the house but died before it was finished. Mm. His son James, who lived in the house from approximately 1755 to about 1780. And then his, son, his younger son, um, Augustus, who lived in the house from about 1780 to about 1830. Was he the last Van Cortland to live in the house? He was not the last Van Cortland to live in the house, but he's the last Van Cortland whose life we interpret. Um, 
when you look at a historic house museum that's been lived in by one family for 150 years, you have to sort of narrow your focus. And so over the years, kind of organically, the interpretation of Van Cortlandt House has developed over time to reflect the lives of a little bit of Frederick Van Cortlandt as, as builder um, and his vision for the house. And then James, who was his older son, who inherited, and then um, Augustus. And so we sort of end it with Augustus's death in 1830 because he was the last Van Cortlandt who was born with the surname Van Cortlandt, the last sort of male, um, and the last male eligible to inherit the house based on his father's will. So there were Van Cortlands that lived in the house till about 1885, 84, 85. Um, but in order to inherit the house, they had to change their name to Van Cortland. Hmm. Which Very interesting. Which leads to all the confusion over, is it Augustus Van Cortland who assumed the name? <laughs> you know, lots of parentheses and, and asterisks and Roman numerals in that genealogical chart. How much of the furniture that's in the house today actually belonged to the Van Cortlands? It's, it's really only a handful, um, and it's a little misleading because we do have Van Cortland family Chinese export porcelain, that that as a group has about 120 pieces in it. So do we count that as one object or, an, or 120 objects? Um, and so it's how, how you look at it. And then we have a few other pieces. Um, and, and some that have come back into the collection during my tenure as um, um, entering the end of my 24th year. Wow. And so September, mid-September, I'll start my 25th year, which is impossible to believe. Do you feel like you're a member of the Van Cortland family? Not necessarily of the Van Cortland family, but I am very proprietary about this house. This is my house. <laughs> um, and it, it's sometimes hard to, to lose your perspective. Um, you know, I tend to notice things that people on a daily basis don't necessarily notice. Um, you know, even before we got started today, I was looking at something and thought, that doesn't look quite right. But <laughs> um, So on the one hand, it's a good thing. Um, and on the other hand, it can be a little difficult because sometimes I need to get outside perspective. Um, something that I may think is right for the house isn't necessarily so. And so sometimes you have to sort of divorce your ego out of it, which can be difficult. Now, this is the oldest historic house museum in New York City. It is. This is actually, we have a couple of really interesting bragging points. Um, in addition to being the oldest house in the Bronx, we are the first house to be opened as a house museum in New York City and really got both the National Society of Colonial Dames of America, starting with their New York Society, um, down the road of historic preservation to where now there are 44 state societies of the Colonial Dames and each one of those state societies has at least one historic property that they manage and it all started with their work at Van Cortlandt House. Wow. Um, we're the fourth oldest house museum in the country behind Washington's headquarters in um, New Windsor, the Hermitage, which was Andrew Jackson's house, and Mount Vernon. What stories do these rooms tell? It kind of depends on um, the time of year because we do try to change our interpretation using the objects that we have based on the time of the year and it depends a lot on the individual person's approach and this is again where it becomes a little difficult as a museum person, museum director um, and somebody who's just absolutely fascinated by the concept of, of material culture studies, material culture being the objects that surround our daily lives and what we live with and that what, what shape and form our experiences in life and it becomes difficult because there's the group of museum goers that wants to see the furniture and see the decorative arts and sort of put it up on a pedestal and sort of the fetishized furniture, cult of furniture. 
um, which we happen to have an, a pretty extraordinary collection when it comes to that. But then there are the other people who come who want to know stories. Because I think one of the things that sort of sets us apart from animals as human beings is that we have, a, we have this craving to tell stories, to hear stories, to relate to other people based on storytelling. And so part of that we want to capture too, as well as having this beautiful furniture, because you want to make a connection to a person when they come. Um, if it's a three-year-old child who says, oh, I have a toy, or I have a dollhouse that looks like that, or I play in X, Y, and Z, or hey, there's a spoon, I eat my breakfast with a spoon. So there are a myriad of stories, really. Which is your favorite room in the house? Um, very selfishly, I'm going to say that it's the dining room that we have just completed um, an almost 17-year restoration project on. How many bedrooms are in the house? There are currently two bedrooms. There were originally three bedrooms for the family. One of those bedrooms was turned into a room that represents, was the purpose of it was to represent the Dutch colonial period. Um, and it really has nothing to do with the house, but the colonial dames felt it was as important to preserve the Dutch colonial period or interpret the Dutch colonial period as it was the English colonial period. And as you know, in Lower Manhattan, there's very little left that represents the Dutch colonial period. What was daily life like here for the Van Cortlands? <laughs> well, the Van Cortlands had it pretty good because they were of a level of society and wealth that um, they were not of the working class per se. Um, and so you didn't have to worry about cooking your own breakfast, um, spinning wool to make into cloth for your own clothes. Um, so it was pretty luxurious. Did they have slaves? Yes. Because they did have slaves. Yes. Um, slavery in the North was as, not as common necessarily in terms of the volume of slaves um, as, as the larger plantations in the South. And so we don't know the full number of slaves that would have been on the plantation, but Frederick Van Cortland's will does discuss approximately eight slaves, primarily the household slaves. One of the most um, valued slaves on the plantation who was given a lot of trust and a lot of responsibility was the miller. Because in addition to having the wheat, they also had the machinery, the mill, grist mill, to grind it into flour because raw wheat in, in seed form really wasn't terribly valuable as a commodity because you, nobody, you don't grind your own wheat at home. Um, and so they had, they had the, the, the grist mill. They also had a sawmill. And so the man whose responsibility it was to keep the mill buildings in good working order was an enslaved man named Piero. And that was a huge job like really huge job because you had to know, understand milling technology, you had to understand how the, how, the, how the equipment worked. And so if something, if there was a hiccup in something, you had to know how to be able to fix it. You had to keep it in good running order. And then um, when you're grinding wheat in particular, or really anything that you have to grind between millstones, you have to keep those stones in really good condition. So they have to be sharpened. Um, you have to make sure that they're cleaned, that you don't have an accumulation of of flour because it was a terrible, terrible fire hazard. Um, and so he had a really big job on the plantation and lived in one of the mill buildings with his wife and his son, um, which if you have any knowledge of sort of slavery in the South and even slavery in the North, it was a little extraordinary to have, to be able to live as your own family unit, separate from let's say a smaller village, which probably did exist somewhere on their property um, for, the, for the field hands. If you had the opportunity to ask a Van Cortland one question today, <gasps> wow. what would that question be? That's a loaded question. <laughs>
No one has ever asked me that question. I might ask them what happened to all the primary source material for this house. We don't have letters, we don't have diaries, we don't have journals. We have only a handful of records that went through the legal system, so probated wills. But we don't have a good picture of the, the full lives of the people who lived in this house. That was Laura Carpenter Myers. She's the director of the Van Cortland House Museum. Big thanks to Laura for showing me inside. For more information, visit vchm.org. Now on to another historic property in the Bronx, Poe Cottage, located on the Grand Concourse in the Fordham neighborhood. On the phone with me now is Angel Hernandez. He's program director for the Bronx County Historical Society. Angel, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks for having me. So describe for me Poe Cottage. What does it look like? Cottage is this small house in the middle, smack middle of the Grand Concourse in the sea of tenement buildings. It was built in 1812. It was the last remaining structure of the village of Fordham. And it's in 1846 where one of our best writers in American literature, Edgar Allan Poe, lived three years of his life. And that would be the last years of his life as well. So he did not build the home himself. This home already existed. Right. It was built by the Corsa family, and uh, Fordham University uh, sits on its historical uh, estates as well. Later on, by the time the 1840s came by, the Valentine family were in possession of the house. The house sat on the Valentine farm on the other side of East Kingsbridge Road and what is now 192nd Street. Where had Poe moved from? He was living in uh, different places throughout Manhattan. He was living on uh, Upper West uh, 84th Street. He was living down in Greenwich Village. But it was at Poe Cottage uh, that he felt something that, uh, that was his. He had the whole house to himself with his family. In his previous experiences, he lived in boarding houses and rented rooms from family. But at Poe Cottage, he really felt like it was his own, regardless if he was renting or not. What inspired the move to the Bronx? Well, Poe's wife, Virginia, uh, she was dying of tuberculosis. She was very young. Uh, at the age of 24, she arrived here in what we now call the Bronx. And it was a time where uh, tuberculosis was called consumption. There wasn't much education about it uh, to treat the disease. So the doctors would send you out to the countryside to breathe in clean, fresh air. Well, in the 1840s, this part of the Bronx was part of Westchester County. It was a small village called Fordham, and it was pretty much the countryside of New York City. It was in in an elevated area of New York, and this is where Poe thought that his young wife would be cured of this terrible lung affliction. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. In 1847, January, Virginia died in this house at an extremely young age. His mother-in-law also lived with them in the house, right? Yes, uh, Mariah Clem, his mother-in-law, who was also his aunt. Virginia, his young wife, was also his first cousin. Although the situation seems peculiar, they were very, very happy living with one another. Uh, When Virginia learned that Poe was moving her out to the countryside, she wrote him a thank-you poem, and it's called The Valentine Poem, thanking Poe for for thinking of her and thinking about her health and moving her out to the countryside. So they all lived quite comfortably, although Poe was extremely poor. Uh, he was considered to be one of the poorest writers in American literature. Are people surprised to learn that Poe was not a rich man? Yes, they are, especially people of today. We get a lot of young kids who, uh, as you know, Edgar Allan Poe is a huge piece of the ELA, uh, English Language Arts, curriculum in New York City. 
and kids, especially uh, in their uh, middle school age, are learning about Poe. They're learning about his writing prose. They're learning about his legacy and, and how he is his style of writing, his melancholic uh, style. And they recognize the genius. They recognize the popularity. And all of a sudden, they're assuming that he was this rich guy, that he actually got paid for these great works. But they're extremely surprised to learn that Poe was so poor. Uh, for The Raven, the story that has been translated in over 100 languages, uh, widely read today, he only got paid less than $10 for it. Hmm. How much writing did Poe actually do inside that cottage? Some of his best works. He wrote The Cask of Amontillado here. He wrote The Bells. He wrote Annabelle Lee. He wrote Landor's Cottage. In Landor's Cottage, he's describing uh, the scenery, the house itself, uh, the environment it sat in. Uh, he also wrote Utiloom. Uh, he wrote uh, other works. So he was pretty busy. He kept himself fairly busy, although he was looking for jobs and looking for ways to make ends meet. Uh, he, he kept himself studious, uh, despite dealing with the other uh, traumas in his life, dealing with his wife, helping her get uh, better from tuberculosis, and maintaining uh, food on the table. But he kept himself very busy, and thankfully, out of that busyness, he produced one of the best short stories ever written, The Cast of Amapiato. Let's talk about the Bells for a moment. I understand that the Bells at Fordham University may have inspired that work? Yes, and that's a big name because when he started the Bells, he wasn't living in the Bronx. He was living down in Greenwich Village. And uh, one day a friend of his saw Poe trying to concentrate, and wanted to, he was just so distracted with all the Bells that were happening in the neighborhood. There were there were chapels, there were other churches that were located uh, in his neighborhood, and he was distracted by this. So his friend had suggested, why don't you just write about the bells? So it was in the midst of his move to Westchester, which is now called the Bronx, and he actually finished the bells inside the cottage. But there is a legend that there's the bell at the old chapel at Fordham University that also drew some inspiration to write this work. So it's a big debate, but we do know that Fordham University still has that bell. Uh, uh, Patricia Kane, who is your head archivist, she had shown the bell in one of our videos uh, shown at the cottage. So there is a connection there. Poe also used to frequent Fordham. Uh, on his downtime, he would take walks down to Fordham, which was St. John's College at the time, and he would converse with the students, converse with the priests. And I had read that they spoke about everything under the sun except religion. You mentioned that today Poe Cottage is surrounded by tenement buildings, but what was the neighborhood like when Poe was living there? <laughs> so the neighborhood was pretty much farmland. You had rolling hills to the west. You had the, the lakes of what is now the Tyrannical Garden, the cows being raised. It was open land. You had these small cottages. Then you had mansions in these large estates, and one of the large estates that were located in this vicinity was the Briggs family, and we still have a Briggs Avenue today. So when Poe arrived, he arrived on the very first train station on the mainland, which is still there, the Fordham stop on the Metro North. That was the very first stop on the mainland, and it is the stop that Edgar Allan Poe and his family got off, and they walked up the hill, which is that hill going up Fordham Road today, up to the cottage, which sat in the bucolic setting of uh, Fordham Village, is, or the village of Fordham, rather. 
So it was pretty much a quiet scene, very uh, a strong contrast to what it is today. Is the cottage in its original location today, or has it been moved from one place to another? It was actually moved twice. Uh, the first move was to, to set it away from Kingsbridge Road in the 1890s, because at the time, that road was being widened. So Poe Cottage kind of sat in the middle of, of it all. So what happened was they moved the cottage away from Kingsbridge Road so it can be widened. And that was on the east side of East Kingsbridge Road in 192nd Street. Then in 1913, the house was moved from the east side of 192nd Street to, to the west part of East Kingsbridge Road inside Poe Park. Now, Poe Park was already constructed by 1902 in anticipation of the house's move. So it was not until 1913 that the house was actually placed in the park. And by 1914, and between 1914 and 16, it started operating as a museum. Poe's wife, Virginia, as you mentioned, died there, but Poe did not. He died in Baltimore, right? Yes. He was on a speaking tour. He was trying to raise funds for a magazine called The Stylist, and uh, he was given uh, offered full literary control if he accomplished this. So he uh, traveled then on his way back to uh, New York City. He stopped in Baltimore, Maryland, and that's where his whereabouts go completely unknown. A couple of days later, some friends of his found him outside of a polling place. He seemed delirious, and people thought he was drunk. Supposedly, he had someone else's clothing on, and he was taken to the hospital. In four days, he dies mysteriously. No one knows, and it's it's quite ironic because here's the guy who, uh, you know, inspired mystery writing in American literature, that his own death remains a mystery after so many years. Did his mother-in-law stay in the cottage long after his death? Yes, she did. Uh, Mariah Clem stood for a couple of years. Uh, she sold a, a lot of the items to gain passage back to Baltimore. But after living at the cottage, before she made that move, she stopped to live with friends in Brooklyn. So she did stay around for a little while, but then she, too, returned back to Baltimore, Maryland, and that's where she passed away. So what in the house today originally belonged to Edgar Allan Poe? So there are three pieces that, uh, that supposedly belong to Edgar Allan Poe. And the first piece is the rocking chair. Uh, the rocking chair dates back to the 1840s. Uh, there's a second piece, and there is a gilded edge mirror which is hung up behind the rocking chair. Also, that is uh, supposedly uh, of Edgar Allan Poe's personal belongings. And finally, the bed that sits inside Virginia's room on the first floor. That bed is supposed to be the one where Virginia died on in January of 1847. Every other piece in the house is a period piece. Just give you an idea of what Edgar Allan Poe might have had while he was living there with his family. Angel, you spent a lot of time at that cottage. Let me ask you, if you had the opportunity to ask Edgar Allan Poe a question, what would it be? If he likes hip-hop music. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and the reason why I will ask, you know, local history, it's tough. It's a tough sell, especially for children. You know, you the kids these days living in the Bronx, living in New York City in general, you know, they're so distracted with modern technology, with their smartphones with game systems, TV, there's so much distraction. They, it's, it's pretty hard to tie history to what's going on today. So when kids come to Poe Cottage, you know, they, they're wondering, you know, what are they getting out of this? Why should they care about this dead white writer? Well, I'll tell them, you know, and, and it's, you know, this is my connection to it. 
Well, you know, just like you guys like hip-hop music. And they're like, yeah, of course. What is hip-hop music? Well, you know, it's a bunch of rappers, and you got to have flow, you got to have some type of cadence and style in the way you deliver your words. And I said, well, do you know that Edgar Allan Poe was sort of a hip-hop artist? And the kids are like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, you know, Poe was a rapper, too. You know, he had his own style of flow. He had his own writing style, his own cadence as well. He used words that were elaborate that we still don't use today. And he was writing about stuff that was actually bothering him. So if you fast forward to the beginning days of hip-hop in the South Bronx in the 1970s, these young African-American men were also writing and rapping about what was bothering them in the community. You know, the kids think that hip-hop started with bling, women, and all types of stuff. Well, it actually started as a cry from the ghetto. And these young black men and also young Latino men were rapping about what was bothering them. It's the same inspiration Edgar Allan Poe had more than 150 years ago. You know, hip-hop music is poetry. So when I tie Poe and hip-hop together, the kids are like, wow, you know, now we understand what poetry is. What I love about that, Angel, is that no matter how you slice it, hip-hop came from the Bronx. Exactly. Angel, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Angel Hernandez is program director for the Bronx County Historical Society. For more information about Poe Cottage, visit thebronxcountyhistoricalsociety.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante. I'm George Bolarki. Thank you so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.